originally went to Chelsea College of Art, then graduated from the Chartered Institute of Marketing uh, back in the 90s, though he looks much, much younger in real life. And uh, I believe you're a course leader at Columbia Business School on digital marketing. And from an actual work point of view, Josh has worked across digital marketing for many, many years, uh, as well as e-commerce, uh, and has worked for brands such as Cartier, TeamViewer, Pantone, which must be super interesting, The Color People, and The Body Shop. So over to you, Josh. Tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, and what you're currently up to. Yeah, thanks, Dan. And yeah, Pantone was a super interesting role. Um, most people seem to think of Pantone and think of mugs or color of the year, but there was a lot more to it than that. But I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. So um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, Dan, I kind of started, my career actually is more broadly within digital marketing. Um, did that sort of client side, then freelance, that grew into a um a small agency and then i was kind of i always describe it as kind of aquahide to be on the, the board of a, a larger agency and then about five or six years ago um and those of you who've worked in agencies may recognize this kind of debate you have in your head around what, which side of a fence is better <laughs> agency life or client side so i decided to move into more sort of contracting and consulting working with brands on client side uh, which has been really interesting, seeing it from the other side of the fence. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, Columbia Business School, they run actually like a 12-week online digital marketing program. So I'm a, I've been a course leader and still a, a guest lecturer on that, on that program as well. So I think I approach e-commerce maybe slightly differently, which hopefully should give some, um, hopefully give a bit of insight for those listening in um in the community but it's uh because i maybe i describe it as a bit more of a holistic approach because of my background in in digital marketing so i'm probably pay a bit more attention to the um the, the uh visitor channel side of things as well as obviously the you know the nitty-gritty side of e-commerce with trading and conversion and, and etc etc so that makes sense and so you're currently at the body shop that does that cover both sides of of the things you've just spoken about so Body Shop, I, I've, it's an interesting one. I'm, I, I started there at the beginning of April, and I'm, I'm on my third different role there <laughs> since since that time. So it's uh, as many organisations, it's you know going through a period of change, and I've been very very fortunate that they felt that they um you know uh, could do with my uh, assistance or input in some different areas. So I'm now um, in a role of uh, global e-commerce director. So um, I'm kind of working centrally, but sort of managing teams in each of the markets, um, which is one of the points where I might come back to a bit later, that sort of relationship between global and market within an organization, um, and also web experience team as, as well. So yeah, it's a really interesting role. Funnily enough, in my, I think it was in my second job, I worked for a company that made potpourri and scented wooden fruits and we were selling them to the body shop so it kind of feels a bit like i've kind of gone a bit full circle and now uh, you know, back there again but it's, you're, it's, you're back it's, to making potpourri again <laughs> yeah it's, it's a really interesting business um very interesting so yeah that's great so from all of that i must give you a really really good view of what is happening in i guess commerce more broadly and specifically in e-commerce it's been a, a strange couple of years with the pandemic, which was kind of a peak period for some, and yeah. uh, a little bit of a lull after for 
some right now and others doing super, super well. Uh, why not talk a bit about the market as it stands and how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, you know, my the, the, the brands I've worked with in the last few years, I was sort of sitting back recently and thinking about there's some really strong things that jump out, but a lot of them have in common as, as common challenges. Now, obviously not every e-commerce brand um, is, is going to have seen the same experience, but um, overall, sort of top level, it feels like uh, brands, some brands really struggled, you know, obviously during COVID when some big macro world event like that happens, there's always winners and losers and some businesses struggled and others didn't or the e-commerce channel within many businesses obviously obviously benefited but um it's kind of like what i'm interested in is the period since then and how kind of brands have been trying to adapt to this the changing realities of how people are shopping now um one of the first things i've really noticed across several brands is um since covid um I've noticed one thing again with my maybe sort of eye on on visitor channels in, in particular, um, declining brand search in, in, in organic search. And often many brands are targeting brand search with their paid search activity as well. But um, I've seen just this steady sort of managed decline in brand search for many brands. Um going on um, and that obviously presents a challenge because you've got a dwindling pod of users and my hypothesis around it is maybe because of the distraction of of during the covid time or those brands that were really benefiting during covid i had a conversation a year or two ago with the cfo of a pretty large organization who said for them during covid they were literally shoveling money into a sack is how he described it but i think i i question maybe whether some brands are taking their foot off the pedal a little bit around top of funnel brand awareness. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say become a bit complacent, but certainly maybe, you know, just not prioritize that area. And I think that has really has a knock on effect on then you see the evidence of that in declining brand search in particular. That's interesting. Do you think or with the, the brands you work for, do you think part of that might be, just people going back to shopping in the real world. So obviously if somebody's been into a store that day and bought what they need, they just don't need to search online anymore. Or do you think it's something broader? Yeah, uh, the, the kind of that relationship between physical and digital is an interesting one. Um, I think that certainly has had an impact. We've seen behaviors change. Um, I've seen across more omnichannel businesses, obviously with that physical retail element, um yeah definitely it varies by market but definitely some behaviors um moving more to physical i've seen some brands kind of struggle to adapt to that i worked a little while ago with a i was talking to a, a luxury brand who you know quite understandably felt that e-commerce maybe um wasn't that important a channel for them because we're talking about very high value high ticket items here and realistically, people kind of buying that sort of online is, is, is kind of a less important part of the business as they saw it. And it was really around the, the physical stores were like the flagship stores. And so um, but they then explained that in the old days, pre-COVID, often you'd uh, have a queue of people outside some of their boutiques uh, to get an appointment to sort of see some a consultant. 
Um, and then I sort of challenged that. I was having a bit of a tour around one of the stores and the store manager. And I said, well, how, do, how does it work now? And he said, well, you have to book an appointment in advance now after COVID um, to actually come in the store and see a consultant and see their, their products. And then I kind of asked the big question, well, how do, how do your customers do that? And he's like, oh, well, they do it online. <laughs> and it was kind of like, oh, okay. So you're kind of saying digital is not actually that important a channel, but actually it's the main driver of your physical retail um, appointments. So, um, and there was no kind of even tracking of that as a goal within the, the, the analytics, no optimization of, of, of campaigns to drive that behavior. So that's kind of one example I've seen. But then yeah, that's quite crazy. Um Presumably, that, that also gives an opportunity for new competitors to push in if uh, great traditional luxury brands like that are not paying attention as they should. Exactly, yeah. And I know it's an easy stereotype to sort of fall into around, oh, very you know, well-known global luxury brand. Um, therefore, they're, they're fairly sort of uh, probably a bit complacent, resting on their laurels a little bit. Um, and, and maybe there was an element of that. But actually, I don't think it that was the main driver it was just i guess maybe it was under representation of the digi digital channel in the business um in this case it was a very physical retail dominated business um but you know okay i spotted it but maybe if this is an internal cultural issue i don't know maybe if the digital team within the business have been given more access um to of what's going on in the business but i'm sure they would have spotted it too what it does highlight actually and i was looking at something just the other day um some research conducted just around voc voice of customer it does reinforce for us in the e-commerce world just how important it is to stay close to our customers and be sort of looking at what they're doing whether you're looking at kind of like screen recordings or surveys and particularly around surveys people who've actually already converted and have they found the process what could be better and and you know collecting that voc of how people are behaving and what they want to do i think is it highlights the importance of that in particular listening to your audience and your customers great and is that something you currently do in your your role yeah as i say just like last week i, I kind of um had someone in one of the teams present some really valuable data. Obviously, you have to take be a little bit careful because it is qualitative and not quantitative. I always struggle to say those. Qualitative or not quantitative. It's a very small sample base. Um, so, um, you know, you need to be a little careful as to how much inference you draw from it. Um, but, yeah, it is. And, and often people try and do um, exit surveys of those people who are dropping out from a site and may can be valuable but i think that example i gave of making sure you you've got like a post-purchase survey in place i think that's also equally as valuable from the people who have purchased from you online and and really just sort of saying you know how did you find it what would be better what was missing you know and people might come back to you with feedback around you know well i you know your delivery costs are too high or this part of the process was difficult and obviously that's a great bit of data to sort of feed into your ongoing optimization work to improve conversion. That sounds really sensible. And I suppose if you have, speaking about those luxury brands you were talking about, if you have a really big purchaser who flags some specific feedback, then you can even uh, get back in touch with that individual purchaser and fix whatever their problem is. 
Yeah, exactly. It does create an opportunity. I mean, when I was working at Pantone, their their audience is um, it's a slightly interesting one. We kind of behaved in like a D to C or B to C uh, manner with e-commerce, but the audience for Pantone are generally um, designers. Um, so you technically could kind of say it's a B2B environment. Um, although we, as I say, the, the area I was managing, which was e-commerce and marketplace on Amazon was, um, you know, very direct consumer driven. Um, but you know, not everyone's in this situation, but for them, it was, um, actually mining the data of people who've purchased and say, oh, here's a designer who's actually in the design team of a major brand or organization. And there's a potential for the inside sales team to then get in touch and create and set up an account for future, that type of thing. You know, I, I suppose that's a B2B example. Um, but it, again, it's a more broader example of a value of just mining that data and being close to your customers and seeing who is buying and finding where their pain points are. That sounds great, super valuable. So going back to what you were talking about before, so you're talking about how the market stands yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah. You've talked absolutely. about the market. What 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 is it that brands should be focusing on more at the moment? Well, I think there's a number of things. I, I mean, a, another big issue I find, but this is kind of, I'm going to share this one first because it's the most, it's the hot topic in my mind at the moment. <laughs> Maybe I've got a short attention span or something, but this is like what I'm thinking about in my day job a lot at the moment. And it's been really common in previous roles. And this is around the, the, the culture within a business. And there's two kind of elements to that I've seen a lot of. Um, first one is just, you know, the fear of being ambitious or bold enough in what you're doing with, for example, experimentation, testing new initiatives. Maybe it's because I come from an ex-agency background. I think maybe that makes a difference. And those of you who have or do work in agencies will be familiar with the ever constant pressure to demonstrate results and innovate because that's what your clients are looking at you to do. Um, and so I, I guess when I work within brands, it it's always surprising just how cautious and risk averse client side within brands things can be. So that's, that's one area. Um, and then another trend I've noticed a lot, but I'm sure some of the, the listeners may be familiar with is this sort of ever present structural or organizational thing around global versus market. Um, I think the last four brands I've worked with, this has been, um, an ever present issue. Um, and, you know, taking some resource, whether it's a performance marketing um, and sort of managing that centrally, globally, um, but also ensuring that um, the kind of your local regional markets feel like they're being well served by that global resource is, is uh, a constant challenge, I would say. And then moving on then in terms of what do you do about that? How do you overcome that? Which is probably the most important thing to think about. I think for the first point with this cultural kind of being risk averse, a lot of that just comes down to management. I spend a, quite a bit of my time at the moment in meetings with some team leads, just encouraging them to go further, go faster, be bolder. It's almost like giving permission. And so I think that is 
a responsibility that senior leadership within e-commerce really need to take on to really be encouraging um, encouraging their their teams to you know experiment obviously you need that framework of kind of governance around it and ensure you're hitting hitting the numbers um and then in terms of the other cultural sort of issue and how do you sort of resolve that in terms of global versus market again i was talking to an organization in the past and they were like we think we need to bring in an external kind of consultancy to totally rebuild the structure uh and i kind of what do you think and i was like no, I don't think so. I think you just need to get people working better together. And I think, as I said before, that does start at the top with senior leadership within global and market, leading by example, cooperating with each other. Um, I had another example from a, a brand a couple of years ago, the, the global team. I, I asked, when was the last time you actually asked, I think it was North American market, kind of what their big priorities and what their plan is for the market and they're like oh it's been about a year i think or two years wow. <laughs> they're like but you're serving that market with the whole performance marketing piece and it's but you're not really tapped into what that market's trying to achieve and what they're sort of oh so that's, that's slightly unfortunate because i guess they would automatically be gathering loads of data that they could use if they paid attention to it yeah, and I think it just comes down to, you know, good old-fashioned communication, you know, asking questions and ensuring markets, if you have got a global structure, ensuring those markets feel listened to um, and their needs are being taken into account. I mean, I probably, if you had to make a choice, I probably would err on the side of having a central global team purely because it's just more um, efficient, cost-effective. You can have a central pool of expertise when it works well rather than trying to build out separate teams in each market so you know but keeping things in some areas more global i think is probably the right approach but there's got to be that communication out with markets that makes sense and so you're talking about brand search how would you manage that from a, a global point of view if you've got a global team and then national yeah teams? so that was as i say a really common issue i've seen um in quite quite a few occasions um, with this steadily kind of declining brand search. Um, I mean, and sometimes, you know, the drivers could be that there's new competition has come into the market, especially if you're in a space where your brand did um, perform pretty well in e-commerce during COVID. I've seen a few markets where there's new, absolutely sort of pure play e-commerce only digital competitors smaller leaner startups kind of doing stuff better um particularly around web experience and and conversion those sort of challenger brands have 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 really sort of cropped up quite a lot um for example in the beauty sector you've got brands like look fantastic and beauty bay and i'm there's some things that they're doing i think they're doing really well actually um with beauty bay in, in particular i think they're targeting a a younger audience is obviously their, their target segment. And you go on their site and their whole proposition is geared around that. You know, your top level messages in your kind of hero or above, above the hero in the pencil banner are pay with through with Klarna, uh, make sure you use your uni days discount and have your order shipped to a collection point. And those are th three really powerful messages for that younger demographic and i have tested this because one of my daughters is is 21 
and uh, she actually buys from Beauty Bay. And I kind of said to her, you know, why is that so powerful? I mean, why wouldn't you go buy and have an order just delivered, for example, or collect in store? And she was like, this is why I do my impression of my my daughter. It's, it's kind of like, oh, my God, Dad, I don't want to sit in waiting for something to be delivered. It's, it's just kind of like she's like she wants that convenience of and also I don't want to have to go out and actually go to a store and collect it. Um and for her, the convenience of having it delivered to the premier store around the corner and go and collect it when she wants, because obviously she's got such a busy schedule, um, it is really powerful for that particular audience. So Yeah, that's really um, interesting. And you were, you were talking about um, brand awareness. Yes. For that audience, do you, do you need to approach that differently as well? Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, absolutely. I mean... I'm generally speaking with kind of new things that come along. I'm a bit of a, I'm not always the early adopter. I'm a bit of a kind of late pragmatist. And I have been that way, I guess, around TikTok as an example. Um, but, you know, consider the channels you're using to, to acquire traffic, I think is really um, important. Um, and that channel mix. I mean, going back to the wider brand awareness piece, you know, I think, New competition is one of the reasons why the brand awareness might be declining. But um, also, I think it comes back to the brands themselves. And to answer kind of more directly your question before, what, what can they do about it? it? It comes down to lack of investment at top of funnel. Uh, but I want to make a clarification there, because, again, I've worked with brands who say, well, what do you mean? Because we've invested millions and millions of pounds or euros or whatever in some major high profile sponsorship for example and but i always try and define it as as no i'm talking about digital brand awareness so it's a big leap to invest in brand awareness offline and then it, the next step is people to go online and then come and visit you i find it's more cost effective and efficient and drives faster results if you're targeting your audience where they are already online, whether that's through uh, tactics and channels like, for example, native advertising is an interesting one where you're sponsoring your content rather than your product. Um, if you're trying to reach a new audience or raise awareness, you've got to do that education piece um, and native ads can be a, a great way of doing that. I've done several sort of trials with, with previous clients of testing that in specific markets, along with paid social, along with some programmatic. And we actually tracked a fairly rapid uplift in their organic brand search volumes in those markets, which I was, I'll be honest, quite relieved about. Because <laughs> it was one, I'd come up with this hypothesis of like, we've got a gap here, these these channels could fix it. Um, but um, And the native, what, what would be an example of that, for example? So native is kind of native ads is where you know, a native ad network, have built a network of third-party media sites, often kind of media, content-rich sites. And you basically, when you go on those sites and you know you often see a section where it's like a sponsored, there's a little tag saying sponsored or uh, supported by it and the brand name. And the advertising takes the form of a, a snippet that links to um, an article 
So it's like the editorial snippet, the little synopsis of your bit of content. That makes so sense. Like, like Taboola yeah. or Outbrain or those kind of Yeah, people. those are kind of like the self-serve platforms. I'll, I'll be honest, kind of I see those panels appear on sites and it's, it's, it is supposed to be targeted and ideally contextual. And sometimes, you know, if they're self-serve, it that comes down to how well the advertisers set up the targeting. So I see those panels and think that's not really relevant. But there's other more established networks i've worked in the past with one called um ad you like um and you can do all sorts of targeting you can share your first party data um and profile off the back of that and kind of do like look alike or retargeting um but it, i see it more as a top of funnel sort of acquisition type um awareness type activity so that's certainly but it's like everything with with marketing I mean, if you've been working in marketing as long as I have, which is a horribly long time, you will know over the years, you know, just doing one thing in isolation, it, it never works. Before digital, it would be, I'd speak to clients and they'd be like, oh, we did direct mail, but it didn't work. Well, it was just done in isolation. Um, so you do need that joined up approach, an integrated campaign with several different channels and follow your audience wherever they go across different platforms and bring in paid social as well. I think if you take that joined up approach um, to a specific audience you want to target, um, then you can start to build that awareness. And then also belt and braces, putting exclusion audiences around your past website visitors is a good tip as well. So you absolutely make sure or upload your first party data of your email subscriber base and exclude that audience from your campaigns. And that way you really make sure you are only spending your money to reach new people. Um, Cause I found, you know, new customer acquisition is often quite, is another common issue alongside the declining brand search for two kind of go hand in hand, I think. And with brand search, do you think some of it is, uh, or some of that search moving across to things like TikTok? Because you often hear that, uh, or certainly in, certainly in particular audiences like beauty, that yes. TikTok yeah. search itself has grown. Absolutely. And obviously in the, in the beauty space, the role of uh, uh, the influencer will li li like them or loathe them, you know, they are kind of here to stay um, is, and leveraging influencers is, you know, massively in, important with um with those those social channels as well but again there's, there's different ways to approach it and i've seen it done various ways i've seen often this is where you used to get kind of like a pr agency would get involved with a big list of the top influencers and pay them a ton of money to talk about your product but you even a smaller brand can do it at a lower level because um kind of there's ways to use affiliate relationships with kind of tier two tier three influencers as well and start getting that exposure um and driving that if that's where your audience is that sounds great and presumably that's a big focus for managing things uh, internationally as well with a, a global team that might not be as close to influencers in particular regions but uh, yeah, in those regions they should know who they're they're working with actually yeah that that raises going back to my point earlier which is a bit of a bugbear of mine about making that global versus market relationship work. That, that's a great point to highlight. When it does work, it should be a two-way relationship, two-way communication, and, and that market can play a really important role um, in identifying uh, social channels or influencers locally. Um, I've also seen another example. I think this was 
Germany a couple of years ago and we were working on e-commerce and um, these were sort of quite high value purchases and it was kind of in Germany. I'm, I'm struggling to recollect the exact details. So if you're listening and really active in Germany, forgive me if I don't get this quite right. But I think there's a cultural difference in Germany where a lot of people will expect to kind of um, pay in a couple of steps or actually pay offline as part of the online process and conversion. Yeah, it's actually very strange. So I, I actually, I used to own a, or co-own a German e-commerce business and uh, it's, it's called Kaufauf Rechnung. So essentially payment after delivery. And that, that is one of the biggest payment methods. And uh, if customers buy through that, they treat it a bit like they're taking an item to a, a fitting room or something rather than actually buying it. So it's a very yeah. different kind of buy. Firstly, that's one of those fantastic German composite words by the sounds of it, isn't it? <laughs> um, but it's um, a great name for it. But yeah, exactly. And what a great example that if we were sitting in our global e-commerce teams and, you know, Germany is an important market, but it's just another market and we make our assumption everyone's going to behave the same way globally. Um, but that's a really important trend in that market. But you need to rely on your local market team to be telling you this stuff. So. Yeah. And going back to the safe space bit, because you were talking about having moved from agencies to yeah. um, client side, you feel that there's some sort of reticence of trying things out. I wonder, is that a, does that affect the influencer thing? Because I know every time something goes wrong in the influencer market, it's a really, really big story. And uh, the, I guess the, the biggest one I can think of, and we won't talk about the reasons behind it, but there was uh, the issue with Bud Light where uh, they'd worked with a particular influencer and it blew up into a story that was across the, the Daily Mail and everything like that. Uh, do you think that part of the reticence is through fear of things like that? I think I actually find, I mean, yes, absolutely. There's a element of risk if you're attaching your brand to an individual and, you know, what they then may go off and uh, do or, or and so on, um, that you need to kind of put some due diligence and governance in place around but actually i find kind of this risk averse attitude more kind of widespread and risk averse maybe sounds a little unfair and a little harsh because every e-commerce team i've worked with in every brand i hasten to add is doing a fantastic job working really hard and they really want to see the improvement in in results and often i found in some past organizations maybe people have suggested improvements but they've just not been listened to as much you know uh so i think it's more it's more as you mentioned uh, uh, creating that safe space and that environment where your teams who are like at the sharp end doing this stuff day to day where they feel well obviously they need to feel appreciated that's, that's just a given of any kind of management um but feel listened to and encouraged to speak up because i've always found it's, it's kind of um, um, sometimes I've gone into brands and maybe I undersell myself a bit, but I've kind of gone in and said that I'm not going to always just be able to identify some, you know, magic silver bullet, huge change in the strategy that's going to turn around results overnight. Uh, what I do find, though, is mostly the teams that I kind of often inherit or take over managing because I do a lot of interim work. They kind of know this stuff. They know what's broken. They know what we could be doing better. We know they know what someone suggested before, and maybe we'll 
<laughs> I'm not going to finger point at IT or finance, but maybe they were pushed back by another team in the business. Said, oh, no, we can't do that. And sometimes you just need to revisit all of that and really encourage people to speak up, I think, is a really important part of e-commerce management. That sounds very, very sensible. So, so far, we've spoken about a couple of things. We've spoken about the market as it stands. Then we've spoken about what brands should be doing. And then we spoke about management of e-commerce. How yeah. about the next couple of years? Where are, where are things going in the future? And what should, be people, what should people be putting in place now? Well, I'm going to put this out there because I'm sure all of us who work in the digital space are kind of, you know, um, bombarded with... Uh, you know, invites to events of like, how is AI going to transfer, transform this and AI this and AI that? So let, let's just deal with AI head on. I mean, as I said earlier, I'm not, you know, you won't find me queuing outside the iPhone shop for the latest phone. I, I kind of wait, <laughs> wait a year for, for it to be debugged first. And I'm kind of like that with MarTech as well. And sort of those, you know, new, new kids on the block in the MarTech stack. So I, I'm kind of, being pragmatic about about AI, I think people sometimes overlook that you know, it's been kind of present in a lot of stuff that we've been doing anyway for quite some time. But I'm looking for real practical applications. And I was looking at one recently, actually. This kind of overlaps a bit with that whole global market thing. If you've got a lot of local markets, obviously you want to localize your um, image assets, for example. Um, and that can be a pretty clunky process in most organizations, very time consuming, very manual. And I was looking at this AI solution. It was like primarily a bit like a, a dam for digital asset management solution. But it had this really clever AI element that for video in particular, you can upload, you know, your, your video clip and it will use AI to do like intelligent cropping to then crop that one piece of one asset into all the different formats you need for TikTok or or Facebook or Meta or whatever it might be or whatever the um, specifications are for your PDP if you're showing videos on there. Um, so you set up the specs for all those different formats and it will all use AI to do all the cropping for you by, you know, analyzing the image and, and identifying where the, the focus areas in the, in the video are. And just do it, it like with one click of a button rather than someone sat in a creative services team having to sort of manually do that over and over for every single video. And we all know, right, that, you know, it's pretty generally speaking, a good idea to try and bring video onto your PDP. It's going to engage the audience more and can drive conversion. But it's often a, a big blocker is the internal resource in doing that and getting the content and getting it in the right format and using it. You know, if you want to scale up a TikTok, what, what content have you got? So for me, that's just one example. I think that's quite an interesting example of really AI coming in in quite an in, you know, useful, practical That sounds way. quite sensible. So don't necessarily use it to try and do completely new things, but use it to do the things that you've been trying to get done much faster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for those of you listening who work within larger organizations, we've all got our pain points in those organizations whether it's in certain areas or processes, you know, I, I've seen very often it's, uh, there's a bit of a blocker sometimes around content creation, um, around, yeah, creative image assets for, for e-commerce to support e-com. 
And it's, um, yeah, that's where I'd be looking. Yeah, where are our pain points and our blockers in the organization now that's slowing down our pace of releases or blocking off certain channels and use AI to, to try and improve those? That sounds great. So for the future, use AI to try and speed up what you've been trying to get done. Anything, yeah. anything else that people should be paying attention to or focusing on over the yeah. next few years? I'm going to call out something that's been around for a while and we all know about it, but I, I think if we all hold our hands up, we don't all do it perfectly. And that's around um, personalization. I think there's still such huge opportunity um, for personalizing the web experience for different audiences. Um, for example, going back to an um something I was talking about earlier, new customer acquisition. I've been looking at this concept recently of, you know, really targeting new customers at campaign level at, at the sort of paid media channels you're using. And when that audience comes to your website, really in, ensuring there's and use that as a really explicit personalization cue to really customize that whole experience on, on the website to, you know, reflect the needs of that audience and what's going to interest them, whether that's highlighting certain product categories or certain products or certain key messaging, such as the ones I said about with Beauty Bay earlier around like, you know, maybe Klarna or whatever it might be. So it's that, I, I kind of try and call it that end-to-end -end personalization, I think is something we could all probably work a bit harder to try and achieve. But even on a more simple level than that, you know, how many of us as e-commerce brands are, are just, customizing the experience for new versus returning audiences yeah <laughs> just really basic stuff you know if someone is coming and, and logged in an account uh, are they seeing exactly the same experience as someone who's totally new you know we've got their history we know what they've looked at before we've got their purchase history and trying to use that kind of build that single customer view and use that as the basis to personalize their experience is something longer term i think as I say, it's been around for a while, obviously, but there's still lots more opportunity in that in that area in the next couple of years, I think. Yeah. Do, do you think that's just technology that's held it back, or do you think it's people too I, focused on the day-to-day, -day or what? I think it's, yeah, it's a number of reasons. It could be the technology. I mean, there's obviously great platforms out there, but um, experience platforms which will allow you to personalize or great kind of plugins you can put into your tech stack to allow you to do it but these things are only as good as the people you've got internally to kind of actually leverage and use them if you've even got people or the resource to use them <laughs> and so it's it's partly the technology partly comes back again to an internal sort of question is to really you know do you have people in your teams really thinking about this and looking at it and just trying some you know going back to my point earlier let's just give it a try and um you know see if we can i i come up with a hypothesis and set some basic rules and roll it out and see what impact it has that sounds very sensible so we've come up to two o'clock and you've shared a lot of very very useful info i think there are a few people listening and we have sinead who uh, can can take questions so Maybe we'll just uh, open up to see if anybody has maybe one question um, and then... Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, so any questions, anybody?
think if you guys want to speak, um, you can just put your hand up. I think we can we can let you have a chat if you have questions of your own. Um, thank you guys, yeah. by the way. Just just before just before if any whilst whilst people are a brewing questions in their heads that was really insightful um I, I said to to josh before i could listen to you talk about this for for days it's so insightful and so interesting um so uh yeah thank you very much for spending the time doing that um does anyone else in the audience have any questions at all don't be scared <laughs> if you've got a question go for it and put me on the spot more than happy to i'm not quite sure of the mechanics around how you uh you just put your hand up and then Sinead, uh, okay. can, uh, Sinead can let people speak. Yeah. But if people are too shy, uh, Sinead or I will just have to put on a funny voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's one here. Okay, great. Like, let me allow to speak. Hi, Christine. Can you try and speak? Allowed to speak? Feel very exciting. We were just talking about the barriers of technology, weren't we? Exactly. Absolutely. Ah, no allowed to speak this is yeah i'm not i'm not sure how i feel about this well josh this fits with your uh, your chat about uh, fear of trying new things yeah and we, we certainly didn't have the fear of trying new things <laughs> i can assure you <laughs> and, and oh there you go well, there she is oh hello can you hear me Superb. Hello, Christine. Yay, we got there. Um, no, that was excellent uh, talk, guys. Uh, what I'd be interested in hearing is when you spoke about personalization, what technology did you actually use to implement personalization? Well, um, uh, it's normally a lot of the brands I've worked with, they're, they're not, they haven't made the leap in the investment onto a full dedicated experience platform. Um, partly, as you know, we all know, it is quite a big investment and there's lots of people you need to talk to and convince in an organisation. So um, it's really a, a, a normally some sort of third party that's plugged into a platform, something like um, and leveraging some of the functionality. I mean, gosh, in the old days, I even, you know, back at Pantone, we were even doing some really basic personalization using Google Optimize. I mean, for free. I mean, that's how, you know, but this kind of makes the point. But there's other things like Monetay um, and other sort of tools I've come across in brands which they're using. But yeah, there's also some of the search platforms do it. So uh, Algolia yeah. and Bloomreach and Kuvio, yeah, they, all, they all do it. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure if some of the A-B testing kind of platforms like Optimizer potentially might, might have that sort of functionality. But it, this was just like... Um, a proof of concept years ago that we did with um we had a, a, a pantone we were using google optimize because we had a, a chronic problem around the us website had organic search supremacy for brand search and so if you're in the uk you search for pantone the us site showed up and you couldn't physically buy on the us site and something like half the traffic to the us site was actually global so this was happening globally and this is really crude. I'm almost embarrassed to share this example <laughs> in the world of, you know, Sitecore and everything else and what those platforms can do. But it was just like a homepage takeover if we detected actually the user was located in the UK with a massive Union Jack flag. Basically, the message was a bit nicer than this. It was basically saying you're in the wrong place if you want to buy <laughs> click here and go to this site now i'm sure there's much more seamless ways that could be done 
But I will be honest, that really crude, quick and dirty kind of example, that yielded six figures in revenue in about three months. It was, wow. you know, of just getting people in the right place, whilst we obviously then worked on our international SEO to overcome the root cause of that issue. So I, I've seen it done, and, and obviously in past lives, I've worked in agencies working with, with Sitecore and seeing the fantastic stuff that uh, platforms like that can do. Um, but yeah, this is why, again, going back to my point earlier, you know, even if you can't be on like a big enterprise level platform, you know, at least just find some way to get started and get that proof of concept, get the business thinking around personalization and seeing the value in it. Um, and then it helps you, I think, make that better case for more investment in future. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, guys. No problem. Thank you. Question. Superb. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you to Sinead for uh, ably hosting the technical side of things, to Kathy for setting things up, and thanks to uh, our excellent speaker, Josh, who's given us lots and lots of insight, and I, I look forward to seeing you implementing some of these things over the next few years, Josh. Uh, and so that's it. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning into the first episode of Shoponomics. We will be back in the near future. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much, everyone. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye.